Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. We've brought Ben Brown back on with the Department of Ag, Environmental, and Developmental Economics to give us a farm management update. And more specifically, we're going to talk about some of the trade issues that have been going on since the tariffs were implemented last Friday. So welcome, Ben. Thank you. Much appreciated. This is great. (laughs) Um, Well, let's get right into it. So what are we seeing as of last Friday? Yeah, so Friday, um, so that would have been July 6th. uh, So the tariffs from the U.S., uh, in terms of property, intellectual property on products from China went into effect. And just as the Chinese promised, you know, they retaliated uh, with tariffs of about $36 billion, uh, on on U.S. products. Uh, most of those were, you know, some manufacturing goods, a lot of ag goods, just about every ag commodity that we, we have in the United States um, now has a tariff above what was already, 25% tariff above what was already in place. Uh, and that, that lessens our competitive edge in, in, in the international Chinese market. Uh, a big one is, is beef. Uh, we were trying really hard uh, as a nation, as a beef industry, to get beef back into China. And this, this tariff basically you know, kicks us back out again. So the hope was that we could get back in for the first time in a couple of decades, and, and now it looks like we're kind of on the outset again. There was also a chance, you know, I kind of I kept remaining optimistic that we'd, we'd eventually get to the day when the tariffs would maybe go into place and, and both sides would come to an agreement. We'd actually never, we wouldn't get there. Uh, but we did, uh, and, and, you know, the U.S. put tariffs on, on products that we thought Chinese, China was stealing intellectual property from. They responded. The one thing that hasn't happened yet and, and we'll continue to monitor is Trump felt that if China retaliated on, on our tariffs that we placed on their products, that he would retaliate again, or the United States would, would put uh, about $2 billion worth of, or tariffs on about $2 billion worth of products to which the Chinese then said they'd retaliate again. So we haven't seen the, the movement yet of, of kind of that escalation of the, the trade war, but you know we did, Friday the tariffs did go into place. Uh, the interesting thing from a market standpoint is if you were watching the markets, the corn and soybean markets, you'd think that the tariffs would go into place and, and we'd see you know downward pressure again because it was actually happening. Uh, we actually saw the markets go up, uh, and I think that was surprising for a lot of people. Uh, a couple of things that contributed to that is the markets have, have been going down for the last couple of several weeks, the last month and a half. Uh, in some commodities, pork you know, has been going down really since the tariffs went in place in April. And um, we, you know, we had built in that you know, kind of that uh, buffer, I guess, that those tariffs were going to create. And so we had built that in. Uh, and then Friday in the afternoon, the USDA released our export numbers. So that brought us current up through May 31st, so the end of May as far as how much the United States has been exporting out of the country of different commodities. And long story short, while you know our numbers were negative, or, you know, below what they had historically been, we were below the five-year trend, we were below last year's numbers at this time, or through May 31st a year ago. You know, while we were below that, we weren't as low as what the markets were expecting. You know, we saw um, 
soybeans especially, uh, but really corn uh, came in a little stronger than what we'd expected uh, the markets. And so we saw a bump in the markets. Now in saying that, the markets are, are roughly back down again today. We saw you know, a 40 cent bump in soybeans on Friday. Uh, they're back down about 30 cents down today. Um, and so that's just kind of the environment we play in right now, unfortunately, is that uh, you know, we are receptive uh, to our buyers. Uh, in this case, our buyers for most of our commodities are international markets of, of some type, whether it's China, whether it's Mexico, whether it's the European Union. Um, about 70% of our, our commodities are now facing tariffs of some sort um, in, in some part of the, you know, the globe, I guess. And so that's just kind of the environment we're in a little bit. We're responsive to that. I had done some analysis a little bit um, because we, you know, as we've traveled the state, as we've heard from growers and their concerns, and I'm sure they've shared that with their legislators and, and commodity group leaders, uh, you, know, their, you know, their concern around how this was affecting their, you know, their bottom dollar or whatever. You know, a lot of questions have been, well, how much is the good crop actually, you know, contributing to these lower prices? And I, I mean, to be honest with you, that is a, absolutely a fair concern, right? We've got uh, relatively good-looking corn across the country, USDA. I haven't looked today. In fact, um, it just came out, or excuse me, on Monday. It just came out on Monday. But uh, you know, the the crop conditions have been good. Um, and so I did a little bit of analysis to see, okay, at this point of the year, based on our, you know, our crop condition, what does a rainstorm actually do? Uh, and 90% of the time, you know, when we get a rain this time of the year and our crop is at this health, you know, this healthy, um, you know, we only see about a 10 cent swing. So 90% of the time, you know, a rainstorm only creates a 10 cent swing and we've lost, you know, $1.50 in soybeans and we've lost 40 cents in corn. So, I mean, it's hard to say that all of this is contributed to weather. Some of this is going to be contributed to trade, but to what extent, you know, that's the, that's the big question. How much is this due to trade? Um, or other things, and um, you know, I think a lot of people would say that you know, trade is is important to us, and and these are definitely impacting our our export markets and, and the amount of goods we we have left to sell somewhere. So, so a little bit about. Let me throw in real quick. Um, so the WASD is set to come out this Thursday. So this coming Thursday, the the twelfth, and uh, you know, up until this point, USDA has not moved on their export numbers. Uh, these tariffs have been proposed for a long time and we we just USDA hasn't budged on on lowering this year this current year marketing year's exports or next year's marketing year exports. It'll be interesting to see now that the export numbers have come in for May and they are a little bit lower um, you know, than our historical, it'll be interesting to see this week if USDA lowers their exports. I've been, you know, for the last month to two months, I, I've been saying that we eventually should see lower export numbers in both corn and soybeans. Um, USDA has left them alone every, every time. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see if they make an adjustment there um, this time. Uh, I think it is possible that we see a lower export number, um, which then leads to a bigger carryout, which then also contributes to a lower price. Uh, that you know would be trading on the board plus also the cash price at the local grain elevator. So how does the trade um, with China affect us overall in the big picture of things? Obviously a third of our soybeans go to China. Um, if they start pulling from other places will that open up market opportunities for us elsewhere? There's the same amount of soybeans out there potentially. Correct, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a great question. And that's one that we, we would call that the rate of substitution. So in the econ world, you know, that's how easy is it to substitute a good, 
a comparable good, right? So you wouldn't necessarily trade out, you know, apples for, let's say, um, you know, a steak, right? Those wouldn't necessarily be comparable goods. But, you know, if you get two fruits, uh, you know, apples and oranges, maybe people are willing to switch. Or if you're, you know, a consumer and you're like, normally I eat beef, but the price point of pork has gotten cheaper, so now I'm going to switch to pork, right? So that, we'd call that a rate of substitution. The same thing happens in commodity markets, uh, exactly what you're talking about. The, the question is how much or how quickly can China switch over to another buyer um, and, and then we would backfill their supplier, we'd switch into their old market. So for instance, in this case, we're talking about soybeans, the other big competitor to the US is, is Brazil. In fact, Brazil's the number one supplier of soybeans in the Chinese market. Uh, they have been since 2012, which as you all probably remember, 2012, we had a big drought. Uh, and up until that point, a lot of people really considered U.S. soybeans superior to Brazilian soybeans. Uh, there wasn't a lot of test trials. I mean, that was just kind of a general thinking, a thought process. When we, were, when we had our short crop in 2012, it forced some of our markets to look south of the border, you know, to look to Brazil and Argentina, especially Brazil. Uh, and they got down there and they found out that the quality of those soybeans wasn't that far off and it was improving right and so that actually opened up you could make the case that the drought of 2012 was was bad for two reasons one we were we were a short crop in the united states there was a lot of farmers that just didn't have a crop to sell but two it really dipped into that market share and i think that ties into a little bit of the concern we're seeing right now with this uh is we've been able to hold our market share in some goods uh, for many, many years. We've tried building that market share. Our commodity groups have done a wonderful job of building and maintaining those market shares for a number of years. And, and I used the example of beef earlier with China. Uh, you know, we didn't have a market share uh, and the beef industry's really tried to get in there and build that up. To answer your question about that rate of substitution, uh, you know, that market share really starts to get threatened in a certain country. So in this case, it would be China. Um, but then how quickly can we move everything around. That's always been the big question is how quickly can everything shuffle around and is it a one-for-one -one substitution? The thing that I would encourage people to remember is that these tariffs when they go into place are, are similar to a tax. It makes the good more expensive. Um, and the, you know for some goods, what we'd call luxury good, you know when when the price goes up we tend to buy more, right? So if you think of Let's think of a fancy watch or a fancy car, right? You know, if the price goes up, we automatically think the quality of that vehicle is higher. And so we tend to buy more if we have money, right? Um, that's not necessarily the case for, for soybeans and corn, right? If the price goes up, we buy less. Uh, if you think of meat at the grocery store, if the price goes up, you know, consumers buy less because they are price responsive, right? Um, we're not a totally inelastic, which means, you know, our demand doesn't change no matter what the price is. Um, and so, you know, in the case of Brazil, uh, you know, these, or excuse me, in China and Brazil, the price or these tariffs make the price of the good actually more expensive. And so, you know, some of that demand in China from a consumer standpoint is gonna, gonna taper off. Now, to what extent, you know, that's a good question. Um, but we can also expect that it's not gonna be a one-for-one -one substitution, that Brazil's gonna be sending as much to the Chinese as what the United States used to send. And therefore, it's not gonna open up the same amount of, of backfill as what the United States used to send to China. So it's not a perfect one-for-one -one substitution, and it also takes longer. These, these reallocations take a while to build. Um, and so I think you know, that's a very good question. And I, that was part of the report that came out you know, Friday in terms of how much are exports actually being affected. Um, I think the export numbers were, I mean, as I mentioned, they were higher than what the market was expecting. Um, I'd also, you know, I talked about if the price of the good goes up, we, we consume less. 
The reverse happens when the price of the good goes down, people consume more. And I think that's a lot of what we saw in the report on Friday with our export markets is the price of the world good went down. The price of soybeans was lowered. Um, and in return, some of our other buyers, especially Egypt um, and a couple other you know places, uh, Newfoundland and, and some of those things, they actually consumed more soybeans, a lot more than they normally do because their good was cheaper, right? They're getting a good cheaper, and therefore they're consuming more. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that's part of the reason why our total exports were a little higher than what was expected, is because the rest of the world started consuming more from the lower price. Uh, and that's that's a in a way that's kind of a big concern, right? Because uh, you know the the hope is that our price gets back to where it was before these tariffs happened, right? And so, if that is true, if what I explained is true, where other people are now buying more because the price is lower, you know, if the price gets back up to the point where it was, you know, they're going to go back to buying what they were buying before, and we're going to end up. So it is a balancing act. It's a trade-off back and forth until you reach equilibrium. Fancy economics term, but you know, eventually we'll get to the point where everybody's got the amount of soybeans that they want. So, okay. So one of the concerns as this trade war escalates is who's going to be able to to last the longest with the least amount of pain. And one of the ways that we've heard the government is planning to address this is the Secretary of Ag, Sonny Perdue, says that he's willing to back and help support farmers. Um, where do you see that that going? What what options does he have for supporting farmers? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a call by President Trump. You know, he he in rallies across the Midwest and in farm communities, he's repeatedly said that we're not going to leave farmers out dry. We're not going to leave them out there, you know, by themselves, uh, because in a way, and he keeps calling farmers patriots because they're they're taking on this and and supporting, you know, the or I shouldn't say necessarily supporting, but they're they're facing the. You know, the challenges, right? You know, they're taking on the burden of the rest of the country to help balance out this this deficit in a way. Um, and so he calls them patriots and he says, you know, if as patriots that they are, you know, we're not going to leave them out there to dry. And he's challenged the Secretary of Ag to come up with a plan to backfill that. Uh, that becomes challenging uh, a little bit. And I think that's part of the reason why we haven't seen a plan. Uh, it, they've said that it's because, you know, as soon as we announce a plan, we lose some of our leverage against China because they automatically think that we're going to you know, we've got a plan, our farmers aren't hurting, and therefore it doesn't matter if they keep the tariffs in place or not because farmers are, are still, you know, getting the support they need. So that's part of the angle. Um, what makes this so challenging is we want, you know, the, the administration, I truly believe, wants to make sure that farmers are taken care of, but I don't think uh, they're willing to come out with a plan with because it lessens their leverage with China. Now the other, so that's the first challenge with, with a plan like this. The second challenge is how do you do it? Um, and you know, I think that's also one of the big hurdles that's still kind of the unknown is you know, what policies and practices are in play, avenues can we use to, to, to support farmers. The kind of the, the big one in a way is you'd like to have a channel already built into place uh, to where it doesn't have to get passed by Congress. You know, the program just automatically kicks in. A prime example of the alternative is you know, hurricanes or major storms that hit you know, a, a wide swath of area or a drought that takes over a, you know, the plains, something like that. You know, a lot of times Congress has to pass a disaster aid bill and it requires votes, it's got to get passed. Uh, whereas the exact opposite would be like the crop insurance plan. You know, it's been passed by Congress. It's a program that, when certain qualifications meet, you know, it triggers a it triggers um, 
payments, I guess. Same thing would be similar to the commodity program payment, ARC, the ARC County and the price loss coverage program, uh, to where when certain things meet, they get triggered. Uh, crop insurance is a little more receptive to that than the commodity program payments are because the commodity program payments require a full year later to get, make sure the marketing year gets played in. Um, crop insurance is a little more receptive because uh, it's based on, a, our, you know, if you do revenue insurance, it's based on a, a price in December that is captured in February and that's you know that's how we come up with those prices and so you know it's interesting uh, the first question is you know the timing of this when do we roll it out the second question is is there a vehicle already in place and if not what do we do to add on to it and I think that's where the farm bill comes in a little bit you know we're reworking a farm bill for this next cycle the next five years and is that a vehicle to where we can attach another policy to help support farmers onto the back of it without losing votes and, and the farm bill you know failing out of conference committee or something like that you know there's there's really three options that are available um, it's hard to imagine the others but you know one of the options would be provide income support to farmers basically guaranteeing them you know a certain level of income based on historical averages you can think of the old direct decoupled payments that we had in the country up until 2014 after 14 we switched to the art county and PLC income supports. Um, they're decoupled from production but guarantee farmers a certain level of revenue uh, compared to their historical five year. It basically smooths it out so you're not seeing the dramatic drops uh, you know, without some type of you know, easing in, I guess, if you will. Uh, the other example is the price loss coverage or this uh, price support. Um, this would be similar to the old uh, price floors that we used to have in the 30s and 40s where basically the government would come in and say, you know, the price of wheat isn't going to fall below $3, $3.50, or in today's terms, they might come out and say the price of wheat's not going to fall below 5 You know, whatever that price floor is. We haven't had price floors for a while, but uh, the problem with price floors is anytime you insulate the price above a certain point, um, producers aren't responding the right way. Right, and so like if if corn and soybeans are low, uh, producers produce less, um, and then therefore it brings the price back up naturally because we've got less supply to work with. Um, with price supports, you know, we're insulating that price up, and there's no natural signal to to lessen production. And so then we kind of end up in this vicious cycle of we're still producing too much based on how much is needed. The government's paying money. The next year, we've got more supply, so the price is lower, and the government's paying more money. So we kind of ended up in this vicious cycle downward to where eventually we just keep producing too much. So that's that's part of the one problem with the price support. The other thing is the world market. Uh, you know, anytime we do, a, anytime any country around the world does a price support of that type of nature, you know, other countries get a little irritated because all of a sudden their prices are lowering for nothing that they, you know, you know in terms of policies that they implemented, you know, their prices are being lowered without really doing anything. It's an external factor that the United States or whatever country um, is imposing on them. And then the third policy uh, option is a supply control. Uh, so in commodities, we, you know, the prime example would be the Conservation Reserve Program where we take land out of production, we put it in conservation, um, but we're, we're basically controlling the amount of supply that's available out into the market. And uh, you know, the interesting thing with that is that's very similar to the dairy support policy that Canada currently has that the United States would like to remove in the, the NAFTA renegotiations. And so those are really kind of the three options, an income support, a price support, or a supply control. Um, and all of them kind of have their trade-offs. And so if the administration does come in and, and backfill farmers and help insulate them from this downturn and from trade, 
what are they going to choose? What are the ramifications that come out of that? Uh, and it's a little hairy, to be honest with you. It, 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 it could get a little hairy, and, and we could be you know, tied up in litigation for a number of years um, before farmers really start to see some support out of this. But it is possible. Doesn't sound like it would be very helpful in the immediate term either way. Well, so an immediate kind of, you know, I probably didn't do a good enough job of explaining what I meant by like having a program in place. If we want immediate support without Congress's approval, it would have to come through some channel of like the ARC County or the PLC. But again, that's a year off. Um, and so then the, the real choice is the crop insurance. You know, if you have revenue and if a farmer has revenue insurance um, and the, the price falls, you know, to a point to where you know they're they're getting compensated based on their revenue insurance now that's a program that's already been approved it's in place it's a program um, and so that would provide assistance this year everything else might need congressional authority potentially um, or the ones that are in place are going to take another year down the road um, before we start to see some of the benefits so so is the farm bill an avenue to do some of this well so that's a, that's the that's when I say an avenue, when I say, a, I guess, a vehicle, I use the term vehicle, uh, anymore in Congress, bills don't just go through Congress unscathed, right? They don't just go through as one up-down vote on one initiative. And, and, you know, whether that's fortunately or unfortunately, I'll let the viewer or the listeners decide. But um, that's just the state of the game we're in these days, right? We, we tackled um, a whole bunch of bills onto a budget bill earlier this year. And that budget bill started out originally just to fund the government, and then there was a whole bunch of other bills that got attached to it as well. Um, right now, the farm bill, you know, largely contains the farm programs or, you know, stuff like uh, nutrition and conservation and energy. Uh, you know, all of those are kind of packaged within the farm bill. But, you know, you could eventually see a program getting added in uh, and then you're basically pitting rural, rural legislators, congressmen or senators, you know, even if they're against that additional you know, bill, that, that bill that's added on there, uh, you know, most of them are in support of the farm bill. And so their choice is, do I support a bill that I've worked really hard to get to this point? Am I concerned about the additional you know, agenda item or you know, whatever you want to call it that got added on? And so, um, when you ask about is the farm bill an avenue, yeah, I think you know it could be, and it's it's interesting that the timing's just kind of working up this way, um, and and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But yeah, I think the farm bill could be an avenue for moving some type of support program through Congress. You mentioned that potential litigation could slow up this whole process. Could you expound on what what potential litigation there is? Yeah. So uh, I, I talked a little bit about you know, international litigation coming through the World Trade Organization. So basically us providing some type of, of support to our producers that distorts production, basically encourages more production than what the market's calling for, different things. And therefore, other countries are you know, at a disadvantage, right? They're getting a lower price. Um, and so lawsuits could come in the form of that. Um, the other way that lawsuits could come is you know, through any type of vehicle uh, that, that the federal government uses to support, you know, whether that's farm incomes, whether that's commodity prices, or whether it's the supply control that I talked about, uh, there will always be people on the winning side and always people on the losing side. Uh, when we saw the 2014 Farm Bill, and just this is just an example, when we saw the 2014 Farm Bill come into action, uh, we changed the way we did farm policy in this country. We moved away from the old direct payments 
that were just you know a, a payment that farmers received for their commodity to help support their income uh, to these new counter cyclical programs in Arc County and, and PLC. Um, those both of those programs had a formula attached to them, uh, and depending whether you know your county benefited from the National Ag Statistics Service yield or whether your county benefited from a farm service agency yield or whether your county benefited from a risk management association yield you know all three federal agencies all three in some cases have different yields um, and so there you know there was farmers in this country uh, and produce you know that you know that felt okay our county was on the lower end our, our yield was lower we wanted them to use the risk management yield or you know something like that. So that created a little bit of litigation. We've all got that smoothed out. The other big thing that happened in 2014 was the size of payments across counties. There wasn't a single unified payment across the country for every county. Each county had different payments, and it could potentially be that as a farmer living on a dirt road that happened just to happen to service the county line, the payment might be $0 on one side of that county road, and the payment might be $30 on the other side per acre, right? So we're talking real money, $30 an acre. Um, you know, if those fields sit on the same dirt road just on opposite sides, you know, they're kind of exposed to the same conditions. I mean, I'm from, mm-hmm. I'm from Kansas, right? We talk all the time about how it's just hit or miss, you know, and our neighbor gets rain and we don't, and we're upset about that. But uh, in, in reality, you know, like the odds of those fields having the same growing conditions are, are, are similar, right? And so that's where we kind of saw these, you know, little litigations amongst counties about why are the payment differences, you know, so great. That's just an example of how policy uh, always has winners and losers. There's always a trade-off. There's always a, you know, an avenue uh, that we can take. And you know, a farmer said, "Well, this would have been better for us, or you know, in our county." And uh, and you know, that just that unfortunately that happens. It's it you can't have a or at least this is my opinion. It's hard to have a blanket program that that services everybody, um, whether that's all commodities or all farmers within a commodity, uh, you know, the blanket approach just really doesn't work and is ineffective. But then when you start divvying out these, you know, when you start tailoring to everybody's needs, uh, or I shouldn't say everybody's needs, the best condition for everybody, uh, you know, then that creates a lot of paperwork, it creates a lot of work, a lot of overhead. Uh, and so we end up with these blanket programs for all commodities. And, and yeah, they're, they're ineffective from, you know, a specific standpoint. Um, but they they do make timely payments, roughly. So that's what I guess I meant by litigation is that anytime there's policy, you know, there are always trade-offs and, and people will, you know, want what's best for them. That's human nature. So. Okay, so to wrap up our tariff discussion, what do you think are the short-term and long-term effects on farmers? Just as a summary. Yep. So short-term effects, uh, I talked a little bit about it's going to take a little bit of time for this reallocation. And the big question is, is it a one-for-one substitution? Uh, the longer we stay in this, you know, the more it affects farm bottom dollars or, you know, farmer operation bottom dollars. And, you know, for farmers that are short on cash on hand and, you know, maybe low on cash reserves, uh, you know, they're, they're tight at the margin. That's what we'd call tight at the margin. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to be able to hold their grain in, in a bin for, for a while, uh, but eventually they're going to have to sell that grain to pay off, you know, input cost or land rent, something like that. And so then they're going to have to sell into this market. And if we're, you know, if we're at a point where these tariffs are still in effect and we've got low prices, right, that's just like selling into harvest 
right at harvest when we're at the lowest price point of the year. Uh, and so they're in a way they're getting they're not able to totally use their their marketing style. You know whether that's whether their marketing style is just keeping it in the bin until the price rallies, right? Uh, you know farmers do that all the time. In fact, the majority of farmers use that practice of, of just storing it either on farmer at the elevator. Uh, but eventually they'll have to sell into the market, and you know even if we're at a dollar and a half below our cost of production in soybeans, uh, you know that's that's not good. And so I think the concern is. You know, the longer we stay in this, the more farms are gonna they're gonna come into this low on cash reserves, and and you know obviously the ones with the lowest cash reserves are gonna face it first, and then you know we'll continue to build up uh, from there. The longer we stay in this, and so in the short term that would be my concern. In the long term, I think it goes back to that markets, and I've mentioned the market share. Um, shout out to the commodity organizations across the country. Ohio has some great producer uh, commodity organizations and they work really hard to build up market share in our international markets for their members and they do a great job their members depend on them to do that and uh, they they deliver and they do a good job and so I shout out to them but you know the the longer we stay in this the more of those relations get built with our competitors and it's hard for those markets to come back and so I think the long-term effect is is our market share access in international markets uh, short term it'd be cash flow okay thanks so to switch gears a little bit, tomorrow the next WASD report comes out. What are you expecting to see? Yeah, this is always a fun time. It's uh, I don't want to sell out a guessing game because uh, we do try to take educated guesses, but USDA always knows a lot more than we know. Um, they have access to the data first. and uh, But you know, going into this, we saw a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago I guess now, is when we got our acreage report from, from USDA. Uh, showing that there was actually more acres of corn and soybeans planted um, than than what was mentioned in the the March planning intentions report, uh, we saw. I guess coming out of March, one of the big questions is where did some of those principal acres go? Uh, you know, there was about three million acres that we just kind of lost, and you know, and no one really thought that we had lost all that to development. And so the question was, where did those acres go? Well, we saw those. That we found them in the June report. You know, a lot there was a lot more corn planted than what farmers intended to plant in March, uh, and so we have more acreage. Uh, so one of the things I expect to see in this WASD report that comes out here in July is you know, a higher supply number for this new crop, right? We've got more acres. Let's say the yield stays roughly the same as what they're expecting. So we do have a higher supply number for both corn and soybeans just based on acreage alone. Now, if uh, if supply increases, demand also has to increase to keep the same price that we have, right? That's how the equation works. Um, and so looking at the demand side, this is where it gets a little trickier. USDA to this point hasn't been willing to move on the export numbers for next year or even the remainder of this year. Um, could we see a decrease or a hold on the export numbers? You know, I think that's a good question. The other thing that is kind of mind-boggling to me in a little bit is we have large animal numbers across the country. We've got uh, arguably another year of a herd expansion in cattle. We've got probably the largest uh, you know, pork supply we've ever had, at least in a long time. And uh, you know, we've got a lot of animals, uh, but our stock numbers, the, basically what I mean by stock is the amount of grain that we have on hand, um, is higher than what we'd expect. And so that signals that we're not feeding out as much as what we thought we should be. So we have more feed. Uh, the question is, uh, just looking at that report, 
can we meet the USDA annual ex, you know, expectation for feed use um, in the fourth quarter? We're way behind going into this quarter. Can we drastically you know, increase feed uh, going into this fourth quarter to meet USDA's expectation for the year? And I think that's probably a little bit of a stretch. And so uh, the mind-boggling question for me is, what are we feeding these animals? You know, is it just grass, or is there not as many animals out there as what are, is being reported? Uh, I think that's it's an interesting question because they'll probably lower the feed uh, the feed number down a little bit. Um, again, uh, they did it last month, and they'll probably do it again this month, just based on our stocks on hand. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, sometime we've got to start feeding all these animals that we have. Um, but we haven't seen that yet. So on the demand side, I think potentially we could see less demand for both corn and soybeans, uh, just based on maybe the export um, and the, the feed number, the export number for soybeans and the feed number in corn. Now the question is, with a lower price, does that actually encourage feed use, you know, corn use elsewhere, right? So as the corn prices come down, you could actually make the case that that makes ethanol more profitable, and so we start producing more ethanol. Um, so could we see an increase in the ethanol production number? Maybe, and then that balances out our feed number. But I think the underlying the underlying point to take out of this is that I think we'll have more supply, and we'll have to have an increase in demand to keep the same price. Any demand, constant demand or lower demand lowers the, the projected price out of the USDA report. So I think right now I'm, I'm more leaning towards the price the USDA projects will be lower than what the June one was, um, but I could be surprised. Surprised. So. <laughs> well, Ben, as always, thank you. You always have a lot of great information for us, and I'm sure we'll be having you back on very soon. Thanks, Amanda. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.